chapter 2. This is one of those passages, the more you study it and think about it, uh, the more you realize that uh, you could probably take a a whole Christmas season, all of the Sundays in Advent, and uh, just with this this one passage, the visit of the Magi, um, and so indeed an interesting task to try to preach it, not only on one Sunday, but on a communion Sunday, so we'll do our best, and uh, but certainly this is a wonderful glorious, beautiful passage in many ways, and we'll try to bring some things to light to, uh, to help us. So this is God's holy word, inerrant, infallible. He gives it to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, sometimes it's hard to be patient after you've put some young children to bed. You feel like, okay, the day is past and I've kind of fulfilled my duties as a parent. Well, sometimes, as many of you know, things come up. Runny nose, bloody nose, forgot to take a drink of water, uh, don't feel like I ate enough at dinner, all these kinds of things. Try to train your children to get through that routine, Uh, but sometimes things arise and uh, it happens fairly often, the stage in life where where we are now. So this, this past week, this was the situation, firstborn child needs something, gets out of bed, I think it was a runny nose, fair enough. Give her the tissue. I'm a little bit, you know, thinking, well, there are things that I'd like to do at this point in the evening and, uh, and maybe done being a parent for a little while. But as she was uh, wiping her nose, she said to me, 
Daddy, since I'm here, I'd like to share a poem with you that I learned at school. It's called A Christmas Gift by Christina Rossetti. Now, you're all going to think that I'm making this up to try to make my child sound like she's some sort of special advanced child. I'm not. I'm not even smart enough to make this up. Okay, this actually happened. The Christmas Gift by Christina Rossetti. At that point, I knew that the Lord was going to put me in my place for my perhaps uh, bad attitude at that moment. He was going to teach me something. And so here's what she said. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet, what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. And so I'm thinking about the, the wise men, the magi, and bringing gifts and thinking about what do we bring to the Lord Jesus? What are the gifts that we, what are the connections from the visit of the wise men to our own spiritual lives? And I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday evening as I'm sort of turning this, this passage over in my head and trying to think of how am I going to preach this on Sunday? And here it is, a beautiful answer. What is it that we bring to the Lord? We give him our heart. We give him that which he created to glorify himself. Uh, we, he doesn't, he's not a king who desires our, our gold. Uh, he's not a king who desires earthly treasures. He desires that which only he can receive. But before we get to that point, the heart that we give him, what is the, the heart that we give him? It's a redeemed and a transformed heart, right? And so there are things that happen even before we get to that place of offering. And that picture is painted for us so beautifully. The visit of the Magi. For them to come to see the Christ child, the Christ child had to be sent. Something had to happen at the start, that was beyond their control and had nothing to do with them. This king of kings who was sent to earth to be the savior of the lost. Then before they give their gifts, what do they do? They fall down and they worship him. They humble themselves before this seemingly humble and impoverished child in very humble circumstances. Having just left the palace of Herod, they through faith fall down before this child, and they worship him. So, something happens, this child is sent, they worship him, and then they receive from him, and then they give their gifts. Because in this Christ child, not only the wise men, but all who find him, find the joy of every longing heart. We find him to be the one by whom and for whom we were made. He made us, and he made us for himself. We find this Christ to be the one that alone can satisfy us. And so it becomes our great joy to give back to him that which he gives us in the first place. He gives us redemption. He gives us a new heart. And it becomes our great joy to give that back to him. So let's set the scene a little bit as we look at Matthew chapter 2. Who are these magi? We call them wise men. And that has probably showed up in the Christmas, uh, the Christmas tradition because they seek wisdom. Uh, they kind of, sort of comparative religion people before that was a thing in the 18th and 19th centuries. They're spirituality gurus, if you will, trying to seek ultimate truth. What is the good life? Well, how do you build a good society? There's pro- it's probably reliable that they were so- in some ways connected to Zoroastrianism. When we'll talk about that a little bit later. They come from the east, and many people think that means that they come from a Medo-Persian culture, 
which that's a very feasible way of looking at it. I uh, read some things this week, and some of the research suggests maybe they came from a little bit farther south, so south and east, modern-day Jordan, uh, the kingdoms of, of Sheba and Nabatea. And one of the reasons for that is because that was also a region connected to astrology and Zoroastrianism, but they had more access to gold and frankincense and myrrh. So it's likely that perhaps the king and ruler of that part of the world had sent these men as a delegation because they had said, because of what we're seeing in the stars, there is a king who has been born of the Jews and sent by a king to greet a new king that has been born. But we really don't know. We can't be quite sure. There are some ways we can see connection to this or to that, but Matthew is a little bit subtle about these things for particular reasons, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But they probably uh, are connected to Zoroastrian astrology, perhaps sent by a king from the east or from the southeast, who have come to give greetings, to pay homage to this one who has been born. What is the star? What is the star that we see show up? Again, we can't be absolutely sure all of the ins and outs of this. In the last couple of centuries, sadly, I would say, most people, most critical scholars have said, well, this is, Matthew kind of added this for embellishment, right? It was actually Herod and the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who tell these magi to go to Bethlehem, for that is where the Messiah is to be born. But reading this account in Matthew, there there really is no reason why we should think that that Matthew is not telling us this because it's something that actually happened. I really appreciate the words of a Lutheran scholar, Lenski, who wrote many New Testament commentaries. And he's writing at the time when probably most scholars are saying this is just a, a fictional embellishment of Matthew. And he says this, I found it quite encouraging. He said, the star moved as a guide, in other words, guided them to the place where Jesus was. The star arrived and the star stood still. It's all perfectly plain, absolutely miraculous, unlike any star that ever was. To me, you read the book of Matthew, you read this account, and this is what is going on. It's some miraculous gift of God that leads the Magi right to the place where Jesus is. Some kind of low-hanging star, luminary. Again, Matthew is somewhat muted about this for particular reasons. But receiving this as the word of God, as absolutely true, it seems best to take it as just that. It is a miraculous star. And it is ironic, isn't it, that you would have all of these explanations. Well, scientifically, we know something like this can't occur. And that's why we know Matthew is embellishing to give sort of a dramatic effect to the story. Isn't it ironic that all the while this star is leading them to a place where they will pay homage to one who has been born of a virgin. When you believe in the scriptures, when you believe in the supernatural, when you believe in God's intervention in history, you can't pick and choose which miracles you think are true. It's just the way that it is. And so we receive this, and truly there is no reason to think that this is not something that really happened. But like I said, Matthew is somewhat muted about this, doesn't give us uh, a ton of info about the Magi, the wise men. 
neither about the star. And we may wonder about those things, but he does that to bring the emphasis right to where it ought to be on Jesus and on the worship of him. So what does the inclusion of this story mean? Obviously, it has a prominent place in the earthly life of Jesus. It's right after he has been born. And now we have these mysterious magi coming from the east to pay homage to the Lord. It's the first thing that happens that we read of in his human life. Well, the first thing that obviously is going on here is we're reading that Jesus is the savior of the world. Obviously, Matthew is written to make a case that Jesus is the king of Israel. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. But the way that Matthew presents that is often a way that points the finger back at Israel and says, the fact that he is the king of Israel becomes a judgment upon you because you have rejected him largely. And now the blessing of Christ is going out to the nations. So you'll see that unfold in many different ways in the gospel of Matthew. But for instance, in Matthew chapter 8 says this, I tell, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what we're seeing is this development. Jesus is the savior of the world for all who humbly come to him in faith. And all who humble themselves before him. Uh, This will be a king that will not turn away the nations. And that fulfills prophecies that we see all throughout the Old Testament. This is a kind of savior that Jesus was prophesied to be. A light who would come to the darkness. Isaiah 60. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. He is a light that will shine in the dark place. He is like a star that will bring illumination to the darkness of the world. But then we have this really interesting and somewhat difficult question of how these men, outside the nation of Israel, outside the covenant people, practicing some form of a pagan religion, Zoroastrianism likely, are able to receive some kind of clue or leading from the study of the stars that pushes them forward to make this long and arduous journey to end up at this probably very conspicuous place and fall down before the king of kings, even to worship him. It's difficult to unpack, but here are some of the things that I think are what we ought to take from this passage. Obviously, Matthew is not saying all religions and all roads kind of end up at Jesus. Not saying kind of pour yourself into wherever you are, you kind of stay on that path, and it's all going to end up at Jesus. That's not what's going on, and that would contradict all of Scripture, that would contradict what we see in the early church, people leaving their idolatry behind and coming into the church of Jesus Christ as the gospel is preached. But it does show us Something that we're getting at with uh, the title in the sermon today. Jesus is the desire of the nations. That there is some way in which Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ will give to the world that which they need and that which they long for. Even though many people could never express it in that way. Many lost people in the world aren't there. And if they knew the kind of joy... Peace, salvation, and assurance that Christ 
gives, then we wouldn't have lost people. But what's going on here is we're at least beginning to see that Jesus Christ is that one who alone can satisfy the longing of every heart. And we also see mysteriously, and we need to be careful about this, but we see in which the the way God is preparing all of the nations to hear about this message of salvation. God is at work in all things, right? God's activity is not limited only to his covenant people. And the way that God prepared for Christ to come, he was also preparing all of the world to see and to hear about this good news of Christ. God is preparing the nations to hear of the Savior. We see this in in all kinds of ways, as long as we stay firm on the gospel of grace. It's Christ alone who saves by grace through faith. Those who repent of their sins and come to faith in Christ are to come into the Christian church. And the church is indispensable in this process. And it's again, it's not all roads leading to Jesus. That's not what's going on at all. I was reading an article, an essay from our own Reverend Madney this week. And he was talking about the ways in which he has seen in his life and he has seen in uh, Muslim converts to Christianity the kinds of things, these patterns, similar patterns in Muslim converts to Christianity. One of the things is their, their commitment to objective truth. Because of that commitment to objective truth, uh, when they start to see these kinds of flaws in Islam, they begin searching elsewhere and oftentimes the ultimate truth is found to be in Jesus Christ. So there's a positive aspect to it. There's also negative aspects to it. In Islam, you have a very impersonal God, a God who is unknowable. But in Christianity, what do you have? A God who is transcendent, who is high and is is exalted, but he's also imminent. He's imminent in Jesus Christ. He comes close to us in covenant, and we can know him. We can know his attributes. We can know God in a personal sense, abiding in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. We can know God as a loving Father. There are these patterns. So in these ways, God is preparing the world, preparing the nations to hear of Jesus Christ. It was Augustine who had himself along an arduous journey. He wrote that beautiful prayer, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So we don't know exactly what these magi were looking at, the kinds of astrological equations they made or the way in which God mysteriously worked. And you can't make any of that normative for our life at all. And you need to be careful about that. But in some way, God is telling us, not only is Christ the savior of the world, the desire of the nations, the joy of every longing heart, but this shows the way in which God prepares the nations to hear of this Christ child. You could look at some place like Acts 17 and what the apostle Paul says there in using the study of philosophy and the pursuit of objective truth to then turn minds to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about this God whom you say is unknown. He created the world and then he came to save the world in Jesus Christ. These magi looked up into the stars because they longed for truth. They set out on this long journey that would lead them to the very one who made the stars. And those stars testify of his glory each time they shine. The stars in the sky, they tell the glory of God. And believers and unbelievers alike dwell underneath those stars. And it doesn't change the fact that they they tell of his glory nonetheless. Colossians 1 
says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things were created for him, and all things are held together in him. His glory is being made known in ways that we uh, cannot always see, but he is glorious nonetheless. And he is sovereignly preparing hearts to hear of his message of salvation. There's also something about this passage that makes us see that if we are given eyes of faith, we will begin to see that all things testify about the goodness and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says this, Lord Jesus, make everything speak to me concerning thee, and may I be truly led to find thee. R.C. Sproul wrote a number of wonderful children's books, and uh, usually all of them have some kind of lesson where you have something happen in the the life of a young child, and then a grandpa comes, and and of course you you sort of understand that to be R.C. A grandpa comes and explains to a grandchild, here is how this teaches us about Jesus Christ. So there's one particular one that I like, where the child has to take a bad-tasting medicine. It says, Grandpa, why does medicine taste bad? And Grandpa says, well, it's because we have to understand sometimes things that don't feel good or don't taste good can bring about good results, can bring about something that is much better on the other side. And the tie-in, of course, is that Jesus came to drink God's cup of wrath, though it was bitter, and he drank it down to the dregs on our behalf. And so we see in a passage like this that if we are given eyes of faith, if we we train ourselves to see the glory of God and train ourselves by God's grace, of course, that we will see Christ, we will see the glory of God in many ways that we perhaps did not see it before. So make that your prayer, that God would teach you to begin to see his goodness and his glory in ways that you have not seen them before. We also have this primacy of worship. They fall down before the Lord and they give him gifts. So we'll move to that. We're going to skip over Herod because we're going to come back to him next week. Consider Herod and the ways that he is maneuvering within this passage and in the passage after it. Uh, And so uh, we see that, again, Matthew is muted as to who the Magi are. He's subtle as to what the star is. To bring forth Christ. William Hendrickson says this. Everything else is left out of the picture. In order that the full emphasis may be placed on this one thing. Namely they have come to worship him. They have come to worship him. So verse 11. On coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. A life well lived before this king. Must begin with worship. We do not work, we do not try to earn the right to come before him. No, this God desires that first and foremost we orient all that we are towards him in the spiritual act of adoration and worship. William Temple has this wonderful 
quote on worship. It says, worship is the quickening of conscience by God's holiness. It's the nourishment of mind with his truth. The purifying of imagination by his beauty. The opening of the heart to his love. The surrender of the will to his purpose. All of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. It's falling down and realizing in the face of one so holy, you must first worship and adore and then receive. As I mentioned before, the Magi can only come to this Christ child because he has been sent. And there's a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Jesus Christ sent to earth to be the savior of the lost. Those who are given eyes to see this Christ, what do they do? They must worship him. They must worship him. They must receive from him. And after we receive from him that which he gives, then there are gifts that we can give. This worship that they have, of course, uh, we wonder the extent to which the Magi understood and knew. Obviously, Matthew is painting this as worship. We have come to worship him. In their mind, perhaps they're thinking about it more as paying homage to a king. But in the moment, whatever happens here, Matthew says they, call, they come and they fall down in worship. And it's beautiful. Why? Because it's a worship of faith. They believe that this Jesus is the king. Even though by standards of human judgment, they probably should not be thinking that. They know what power is. They probably were sent as a delegation from a king and a ruler from the east. They just came from Herod's palace because that's where you go when you're expecting to find a king. They need their course to be corrected. They go to Bethlehem. The star leads them. They find this impoverished family. Jesus no longer laid in a manger, but probably they've got some corner room now in a little house of a relative or somewhere else. And yet they still fall down and worship him because they believe that he is the king they have come to worship. In a similar way, We don't see Jesus with our human eyes reigning and ruling. And oftentimes in life we can be tempted to think that Jesus is not on that throne. For whatever reason, for our trials, the travails of this life, for the way in which this world rebels against the power of God and the goodness of God and the truth of God. But the heart of faith says he is reigning. He is the king. He is ruling, and thus we worship him as the worship of faith. This Christ has humbled himself, an impoverished infant. And yet, what do these wise men do? They, they humble themselves even more to bring themselves lower than Jesus, that they may pay homage to him. Matthew's point, of course, is that we must do the same. Jesus was brought low at the cross, yet he is worthy of our trust and belief. He was brought low in his birth. But how low is he brought at the cross? That pinnacle of human shame at that point in human history. There was no worse or more shameful death to die. And that is the one that we worship by faith. The world says Jesus was just a man. We say he was and is God and man. The world says he was just crucified. We say he was crucified and risen. We gladly fall before him, who was made low, but who now reigns. And we accept that reign on faith, even though we do not see him with human eyes. But by faith we worship him as the one worthy of all that we bring. So the gifts that the Magi bring, 
Many things you could say about the gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts fit for a king, especially gold. So the gold reminds us that Jesus is a king. Incense or frankincense has so many connections to worship. And throughout church history, the point has been made that it reminds us that Jesus is God. Myrrh is something that people used to fight against odors in that day, particularly connected to burial. That reminds us of Jesus' mortality. In ways beyond what the Magi understood, they brought gifts that reminded us Jesus is a king, he is God, and he is man. All of these we find in the perfect savior of the world. But ironically, what did Mary and Joseph, how did they use these gifts? They couldn't put them on the shelf. You know, royalty accepts gifts. Kings accept gifts. They already have riches, and so perhaps they put that incense on a shelf or that gold in the, the treasury. It's possible that Mary and Joseph need to use this gold in order to fund their flight to Egypt. Uh, that they have to use these things. They used up these gifts that were fit only for a king. And it reminds us that Jesus came to this earth, but he did not come seeking earthly riches and earthly wealth. And that's not what he wanted. He came to save. He came to redeem. And when he redeems, what he primarily wants us to give him, it's not our earthly riches. It's not the works of our hands. It's our heart. It's that which he made for his own glory. He made our hearts our minds, our affections, our wills. He wants all of that oriented to him. What can we bring, poor as we are? We'll give him our hearts. We'll give him our hearts. Give to God, not the works of your hands. Give to him the works of his hands. He made you so that you might serve him. Worship him, for he was sent to save. Worship him, fall down before him, receive from him, and then give back to him that which only he can receive. And then let these wise men teach us and challenge us that we so easily waste the immense blessings and the opportunities that we are given. A church in which to worship, a Bible that we can read, a table before which we can come together, freedom and joy, the reminder of all that God does. These magi, given so little, go on this long and arduous journey, seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. They were doing more than they understood, certainly. But it challenges us, with all the comforts that we're constantly given, all of the resources that are available to us, time after time after time, this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, here at the table, with so much, why? Why do we so often fail? Why do we so often fail? For wise men, Wise men still seek him. So may it be said of us, by God's grace and by his power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, then we pray that you would prepare us for this table and for this celebration. Lift the eyes of our hearts to faith that we may see Jesus and his reign. Help us to fall down before him, to worship him. One who is sent, help us to receive from him and fit us that we may give back to you that which you as our great God can only receive, our hearts. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.